Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine. We discuss Poland's warning to NATO that it has just three years to prepare for a Russian attack. And we're on the ground in the UAE to witness Vladimir Putin's visit to his Middle Eastern ally. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 7th of December, one year and 286 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, Europe editor, James Crisp, and former tank commander and Telegraph contributor, Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Thanks, David. Dramatic footage is doing the rounds this morning of what Ukrainian forces say is of their military destroying a Russian helicopter using an American-made HIMARS missile. The images were obtained from the Office of Strategic Communications of the Armed Forces yesterday, along with a rather simple statement. Today, UAV pilots of the Defence Forces adjusted the operation of the HIMARS of the Armed Forces. We don't know anything more than that, which is verifiable. What is undeniable, however, is the equally striking footage coming out of Kyiv overnight of a swarm of Iranian-designed attack drones damaging port infrastructure in the southern Odessa region. It left one civilian dead. A total of 18 Shahid attack UAVs were launched, the Ukrainian Air Force have said, adding that they destroyed 15 of them. The head of the Black Sea region said separately that for several hours, drones attacked the Ismail port district, which has, of course, been key to exporting Ukrainian grain in recent months. Regular listeners will recall when Roland was there not too long ago. A driver was killed and grain infrastructure damaged, we understand. We've known for some time now that Russian forces have stockpiled drones and missiles for attacks on Ukraine's energy grid over winter months and those key infrastructures such as those grain ports. This is on top of the usual challenges Ukraine faces at this time of year as a result of the extreme cold. 
Today alone, Ukraine's power grid operator said that cold weather had pushed power usage 2.7% above forecast levels, causing a deficit in the power system, which was being filled by imports from Poland, Slovakia and Romania. As we've discussed many times, much work has been done with Ukraine's Western allies to help prepare Kyiv for this winter, especially in the form of air defences to avoid blackouts like in previous years. Already, we're seeing their effectiveness over the capital. But it remains too early to say whether Ukraine will be able to avoid the massive power outages of last year. Now, turning to the other major news of today, Ilya Kiva, a former Ukrainian MP, has been assassinated in Russia by Ukraine's SBU security service. Law enforcement sources have told BBC Ukraine. The criminal was liquidated by using small arms, the sources said. Russian investigators said Kiva was shot in a village west of Moscow where his body was found yesterday. Earlier this year, Kiva was handed a 14-year prison sentence for high treason by the Ukrainians after calling for Russia to occupy Ukraine. He fled to Russia one month before Moscow launched its invasion in February 2022 and was tried in absentia. He's 46 year old, so years old and campaigned unsuccessfully for Ukraine's presidency in 2019. A spokesman for Ukraine's military intelligence has told Ukrainian TV, we can confirm Kiva is no more. This fate will befall other traitors of Ukraine and puppets of Putin's regime. We've spoken recently about the operations of the SBU and the degree to which their work is apparently secret, even to the very highest level of politicians in Ukraine. So we don't know who may have been aware of this operation or not. There is always political risk of such activity. Certain powers get rather jumpy, to put it mildly. But evidently, the Ukrainians believe it is important to send a message to what it calls traitors, even or especially those with a high profile. Thank you very much, Francis. Let's move to the US then. What's the latest from the US Congress that the important votes on that package of military support for Kyiv, which also included support for Israel, was yesterday? What happened? It certainly was. And the Senate blocked that emergency package, which included $60 billion in new military support for the Ukrainians. Senators voted 49 to 51 and thus failed to reach the vote threshold that would allow the proposal to come up for consideration. The vote was along party lines, with every Senate Republican voting no, along with Senator Bernie Sanders, who, of course, generally votes with Democrats, but had expressed concerns about funding Israel's current inhumane military strategy, his terms, against Palestinians. Now, President Biden subsequently pleaded with Republicans to support his package, warning that a victory for Russia would leave Putin in the position to attack NATO allies and could draw US troops into a war. He was speaking at the White House as it announced $175 million in additional Ukraine aid. Somehow that was acquired from emergency budgeting within the Defence Department, we understand. Signaling as well a willingness to make significant changes to US migration policy along the border with Mexico to try and draw Republican support. If Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there, Biden said. Putin will attack a NATO ally and then he will have something that we don't seek and that we don't have today. American troops fighting Russian troops. 
He then went on and accused extreme Republicans, his term, of playing chicken with our national security and holding Ukraine's funding hostage to their extreme partisan border policies. This isn't the end of the saga. In an indication that Democrats intend to return to the matter promptly, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer flipped his vote to no so that it could bring the bill up again in the future. I expect there will be concessions offered to the Republicans, but will that be enough for it to pass in good time? We simply don't know. Sources there seem to suggest that the answer may be yes, but don't take our word for it. As we reported yesterday, Zelensky had to cancel his secret briefing with US senators due to some last minute issue, which journalists still haven't quite got to the bottom of. It could be that it became obvious the Republicans were not going to back the deal. And in order for Zelensky not to lose face, it was decided better for him to be pulled out. We simply don't know. That's just speculation. But if we do, we'll let you know. What we do know is what Zelensky said to the G7 leaders in that virtual meeting scheduled for yesterday. In the call, attended by President Biden and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and amongst other world leaders, Zelensky said Russia hopes for only one thing, that next year the free world's consolidation will collapse. He warned Moscow had significantly increased pressure on the front. The challenge for Zelensky now is that he is in an almost impossible political situation. Until something changes for worse or for better, it feels unlikely that he will receive more support than he currently is in the short term. My own feeling is that if Russia did make sizable advances, and I'm not saying that's likely, by the way, but if, then that would rouse the West from its stupor. There is an, an assumption we've already talked about that Ukraine has already done enough for victory. But actually, I think that is an assumption that completely ignores Putin's maximalist aims, which he has not denied at any point. And it is tragic that it would take that to wake the West up. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Before we go to Hamish and then to James in the UAE, could you just take us through some of the final updates you've been looking at? I'll be brief. The US charged four pro-Russian soldiers with war crimes for the abduction and torture of an American national in Ukraine. This is unprecedented, which is why I mention it. So Merrick Garland, the attorney general, said the charges against the four Russia-affiliated military personnel, that's their term, were the first to be brought under the US war crimes statute. According to the indictment, two of those charged were commanding officers of military units of the, quote, Russian armed forces and or the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. The Justice Department said the soldiers abducted the US national who hasn't been identified in April 2022 from his home in the village of Herzon Oblast and held them for at least 10 days. They allegedly threw the victim's face down to the ground while he was naked, tied his hands behind his back, pointed a gun at his head and severely beat him. If ever taken into custody and convicted, these soldiers would face a maximum sentence of life in prison. And the Justice Department doesn't mince its words in talking about the witnesses of horrors of Russians' brutal invasion of Ukraine and that they will work for as long as it takes to pursue accountability and justice for Russia's war of aggression. But, of course, this is just one case, and it's one that relates specifically to a US citizen. There is so much more work that will need to be done in the years after this war to even try and account for the crimes that have been committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. And the scale of that challenge is something that is currently in the hands of a fair small number of people, whether they be working in The Hague, whether they be working as part of other international organisations. 
But I still think that the world has not really woken up to how this is going to be a generational fight, the justice, if we are serious and keep to the word that Western leaders made, which is that Russia will be held accountable for this. But it seems that many are rather forgetting those pledges. But just lastly, David, Russian lawmakers on Thursday set the date of the 2024 presidential election for March 17th, moving Putin closer to a fifth term in office. He hasn't yet announced his intention to run again, but he is widely expected to do so in the coming days now that that date has been set. Under the constitutional reforms he orchestrated, he is eligible to seek two more six-year terms after his current one expires next year. I don't think there can be any doubt that he will succeed in that election for obvious reasons, but nonetheless, worth of report. Thank you very much, Francis, for talking us through all of those updates. Hamish de Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. There's quite a lot to speak about. I don't know whether you'd like to start with um, looking at this visit to the UAE or rather talk a little bit about this warning uh, that Poland gave the West. They warned NATO has three years to prepare for an attack by Russia. I'd be curious from your position as a, as a former soldier, what, what are the Poles warning? How should we be reacting? And what do you see, if anything, as actually doing about it? Yeah. Hi, hi. Good afternoon, team. Great to be on again. What a, what a fascinating time this is. And of course, they're, they're all interlinked. I mean, first of all, looking at Putin's um, trip around the Middle East, um, it is showing remarkable confidence. In theory, if somebody wanted to take Putin out, um, him flying around in a big aeroplane, sure, he's got a couple of fighters with him. Um, would not be that difficult, I would have thought. So I think his growing confidence, of course, he likes to see himself as a sort of um, grand strategist, a strategic master. And I think all these, you know, what he's doing at the moment, everything is is sort of interlinked. We look at the UAE, a COP28 there happening at the moment. Putin is an indicted war criminal. But then so is Assad. And Assad was invited to COP28 as well. He didn't go. One, one would have hoped that, uh, that, that he would have been arrested. Having said that, of course, representatives of the Syrian regime uh, have turned up at COP. Uh, UAE's explanation that this will help peace in Gaza and Ukraine to have the Russian uh, leader there. Again, it seems very strange to me. It sort of strikes me as being real politique. Um, you know, UAE and uh, and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as well, of course, absolutely reliant on the price of oil, um, as is Putin to keep his war machine going. So I think that is is more to it. I the visit to Riyadh is I find that more difficult. I mean, the Saudis have always been very close to the UK in particular. They have a lot of our our weaponry, particularly tornado jets and others, and a lot of kit. And there are big British training teams in Saudi to this day. So having Putin waltzing around Riyadh does seem a bit strange, but I think it is part of his growing confidence. And and we, we talk about the wobble. And Francis has been describing what's been happening in the US in the last 24 hours, which um, is a concern. Now, when we link that in to the polls, the the warning from the chief of security in Poland that the West or NATO needs to be prepared for an attack from Russia in three years' time, I I think there is an awful lot to, to dig into here. And I'll just try and shape it from a sort of uh, soldier's 
perspective. The current thinking, and, and a German think tank, I think also over the last 24 hours, w- was talking about sort of six to eight years. But I think the polls and the way they're looking at it is, is probably more realistic and something that we need to concern ourselves with. So why do I agree that the polls are in the right place and, and why am I concerned? Well, I think there are a number of things. The US position on supporting Ukraine are absolutely key. And a lot of it is about psychology and morale. Now, that, that decision will be very welcome uh, in, in the Kremlin for a whole host of reasons. But then when we look at Russia itself, we know it was announced this week Russia is going to spend 30% of its gross domestic product on defence. This country spends 2% or just a little over. So you can just see that. To me, that is Russia going on a total war footing and with industry and everything focused towards war. Sort of thing we that this country did in the Second World War, which allowed us to prevail there. When we look at it and just allied to that, Putin's now had another 170,000 troops coming into the military. And we also heard last week 100,000 inmates being sprung out of jail to fight in the front as well. So that total commitment, the whole of everything uh, that Russia has into it. We then look at NATO. We know that ammunition stocks are very low. We know in this country, the main press in this country today is not about Ukraine. It's about the COVID inquiry. It's about illegal immigration and and climate change to a lesser extent. And it leads into the fact that, of course, you know, in this country, we're going to have an election sometime next year, probably similar to the US. So Putin, with his strategic hat on, is looking at that as another potential driver. And our our own military, what we are doing to build up and prepare. I'll come back. There are, I think there are a couple of good things that we need to look at here. Um, but like most NATO countries, this country is not heavily focused on building up its military. In fact, the military budget's been absolutely hammered by the inflation rate and hikes in in salaries and everything else, which is absolutely as it should be. But actually, of course, it takes a lot of money away from bombs and bullets that that we're trying to develop. So I think when you look at NATO and you look at Russia, we we are very much behind the curve. Now, in theory, because we are the we would be defending, as it were, we should be in a much stronger position and with our superior equipment, intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I agree with with Poland and other thinkers in this area that actually those Latvia and Lithuania up in the north of the NATO area are is really what Putin is probably focusing on. And, um, you know, if he decided to invade them in three years time, you know, are we in a position to defend them? Of course, there is still a British battle group in Latvia and uh, other forward station NATO troops. But it just strikes me that, and I think strikes the polls, that there is a weakness. We've been so focused down on Ukraine that the, that the rest of it. So three years might be, it might be undercooking it slightly. But when you look at all the geopolitical things happening, elections, US, UK and across Europe, if Ukraine doesn't prevail, 
next year and we have a sort of stalemate that we have at the moment, then and if Russia is still at total war building, you know, we, we in this country are trying to create 100 plus Challenger 3s to be in service in a couple of years time. The Russians are, are making 100 T90s every month sort of thing. So it is a different scale. And it's, it worries me that in this country, we are so focused on other things that, quite frankly, we're not preparing for the next pandemic. We're, we're putting blame for the last one. So there, there, there is that. You know, it could be irrelevant if the Russians do come over the border in three years' time. So I, I think in some, it's, we are so focused on, on, on Gaza and Israel. And of course, part of Putin's trip to the Middle East is to stoke that particular fire. Interesting enough, he hasn't been to Tehran, but I understand the discussions in the UAE or, or the discussions in Riyadh, as reported in the Telegraph, were about Iran's nuclear capability, among other things. And as we know, the Russians developed the Syrian chemical weapon program. They no doubt have been helping Iran with their nuclear program. That, that does concern me slightly. The plus to this, the final bit to wrap it up and then I'll stop. Sweden coming into NATO. Now, that hasn't been ratified yet. You know, it, Istanbul has been in the past being a bit of a sea anchor here. I would hope that um, the leaders here and in the US, when they start focusing, looking above the parapet on what's happening in the world, can make sure that that happens. Because I think Sweden will be a, being a full member of NATO, will be a very positive thing and a, and a deterrent to Russia. And the other thing that we, we talked about some weeks ago that appeared insignificant was that the fact that US tactical nuclear missiles probably going to be stationed in this country from next year. I know that CND and Stop the War and others, no doubt, will, will have a thing to say. But actually, I think strategically from a defensive position, that is a good thing. Because, again, Putin will know that there are these tactical nukes. And tactical nuclear weapons are battlefields, short range. We've discussed about Ukraine, but potentially have a huge impact there. So, yeah. I think I would hope that as it comes to the end of the year and people start thinking and, and taking their, their eyes above the parapet, that in this country, in Whitehall and in Washington, we really look at the future and try and make sure that the prophecies are coming out of Warsaw about three years' time, a Russian attack, that we realise that actually we really need to do something to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, thank you very much, Hamish, for that analysis. That was really fascinating. Let's go to James Crisp. James, you're out in the UAE. We've discussed this state visit of Putin to the country. What have you seen on the ground? Has it has been as lavish and full of pomp and ceremony as we've reported? Hi, can you hear me now? Loud and clear, that's great. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, sorry about that. So, yeah, I mean, it really was as lavish uh, as it appeared from outside of the UAE, where I am, now, I mean, I'd say they rolled out a red carpet for Putin, but actually they rolled out a red velvet carpet for Putin at the president's palace. I was there in Abu Dhabi. Uh, obviously, I couldn't get too close. Security was extremely tight. But I could see when I wasn't being ushered away by beret-wearing, sunglass-toting policemen and soldiers, I could see that there was a guard of honour. 
There were Arabian steeds and camels, gentlemen mounted on them, holding pennants in the Russian and uh, UAE flag. As Putin's convoy went past me, the, the security was, as you'd imagine, extremely high. It was a huge convoy. Uh, the only thing I'd say that I've seen which comes anywhere close is when the president of the United States visits somewhere. And then I suppose the moment you may have all seen back home was the fly past of the uh, UAE Air Force equivalent mm -hmm. of the Red Arrows. And they flew over the palace and trailed smoke in the colors of the uh, Russian flag. So we had this sort of this scene where, you know, the Russian tricolor was quite literally hanging above the uh, Abu Dhabi skyline, uh, which was quite quite a sight and, and, and really the sort of thing you don't, it, it was unusual to see. I mean, because obviously I work most of the time in Europe or in Britain and Russia is very much a pariah in the West. And well, let's just say he certainly wasn't welcomed like a, a, a wanted alleged war criminal in uh, the UAE. Not at all. Quite the opposite. That's a fascinating account, James. Could, could we step back for a, for a moment then? Could you just explain for us, let's take this very simply, why did he go? What did Putin want from this trip to the UAE? And do, do we think he's got it? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean, look, uh, Putin is looking to cement alliances with the countries who will still speak to him. You know, he hasn't been able to visit many countries since his illegal invasion. I mean, now, uh, if he visits large parts of the world, there's a, a treaty out for his arrest. So that isn't the case here in the UAE. They never signed the, uh, the International Criminal Court Treaty. China hasn't either. So he's been able to go to China and he's been able to go to some former Soviet Union republics. I mean, so look, he is isolated, but this is about projecting an image, I think, at home and also abroad of a, an international statesman, still a power broker. And yes, on those terms, it's a propaganda coup. The pictures look good. He was delighted. And, you know, it does talk of him helping to bring peace to Israel felt deeply ironic, given that this is a man who's, you know, a warmonger <laughs> by, by any definition of the term. But I think there's other factors to play as well. I mean, the UAE has been neutral on the invasion uh, of Ukraine. They're in the OPEC plus group of oil producing nations together. Russia supported the UAE's uh, candidate, candidacy to join the BRICS group of nations. Uh, I mean, does this convince anyone in the West that Putin is, is still a, a world leader worthy of respect? No. Uh, and I suppose if you're looking at this uh, in deeper terms, what we have here is a, a Russian leader who is basically going cap in hand to some very rich allies who quite clearly don't need him as much as Putin needs them. James, the last story you wrote out there that I'm looking at now, the headline is the UAE defends the lavish welcome of Putin. What was their justification for, for the show they put on? Well, they said that they're in favour of peace, but they're in favour of peace through dialogue and communication. So they seem to think it's better to keep diplomatic contacts open. 
I mean, look, there's a big Russian community here uh, in Dubai. I'm in Dubai now after having been in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I've been walking around some of the landmarks, some of the shopping malls, and you hear Russian on the street. I, I mean, some of these Russians were tourists. You know, this is a place they can come. This is a place where they won't face opprobrium for what's happened in Ukraine. Some, I believe, would have come here when war broke out to basically to dodge the draft. Others will have come here to hide money, oligarchs, that sort of thing. I mean, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, as I as I sort of drove into Dubai, you know, I saw adverts for the Arabic version of RT, Russia Today, you know, which is a broadcaster which has been banned in the UK and the EU. I've been I watched some of it last night, and there should we say their portrayal of what's going on in the war in Ukraine, for example, they refer to the regime in Kyiv, is very different. It's, I, I, this is the place where Russians can come and their money is, is welcome and they are made welcome. And it's also a place where Russian oil can be bought and sold. I think we had some sanctions from uh, the Foreign Office imposed yesterday, as Putin, shortly after Putin touched down, although we understand that was a coincidence. Uh, sanctions against, I think, four UAE shipping companies, and they've been basically accused of trying to hide the uh, the extent of Russian oil exports. Basically, and Russian oil exports are, of course, hugely important for the wartime economy. You know, it fuels the Russian war machine, as as which, which Hamish was talking about earlier. And finally, one question from me, James. Did you get any sense about how this visit has gone down with the locals? I mean, we've seen a lot of, we've seen the sort of official pictures, obviously. So as you said, the fly pass to the camels, or all, all, all the flags and the pomp and the ceremony, etc. Do, do you think this has permeated the sort of the, the average Emirati's conscience? What's your thoughts? I mean, that's hard. That's hard, hard to say, really. I mean, to an extent, you've got to go off of what the media is saying. And I, I think, I don't think I'm being unfair if I describe the local uh, media here as, as very respectful to the rulers of the UAE. So, I mean, but were there Russian flags out everywhere? No, by no means. Around the palace, certainly. I don't know if this has made, I, I'm not sure to the extent Ukraine registers on people's conscience here. Uh, conscience? Well, I should have said consciousness. I think that's a Freudian slip. But I, I think really the, the, what people here are really interested in is the Israel-Hamas war. I mean, there was a story in one of the newspapers about an increase in mental health issues because people feel so strongly for the Palestinians and the pictures coming out of the Gaza Strip have caused I suppose, a light form of PTSD, at least according to the, the article I read. So I think, as you'd expect, in the Gulf region, focus isn't on what's happening in faraway Europe. The focus is what's happening in Israel and what's happening to their fellow Muslims in the, uh, uh, in the Gaza Strip. That's where their uh, interests lie. And, and, um, and, you know, I think Putin sort of knows that. I mean, Putin... Uh, well, he's 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 not exactly uh, condemned Hamas, has he? Well, thank you so much, James. That was really interesting, and I think just what we needed. And it's really great to hear about some of your reporting on the ground. What temperature is it out there? Have you been surviving? Twenty-eight degrees. Twenty-eight degrees. So I think when Putin arrived yesterday, um, he he, uh, he escaped the Russian winter 
and got given a warm welcome in, in sort of every sense of the word. Well, thank you so much for joining, James. We'll come back to you for a final thought, if that's all right. Um, If there's no other stories to report on, Francis, can I come to you first for your final thought? Thanks, David. Well, really fascinating hearing from James on the ground. And I just wanted to thank all of those listeners who've written in to express their concern over the potential sale of Telegraph Media Group to the Abu Dhabi-linked Redbird IMI. Hearing James' report on that kind of reception Putin received there, you can understand our concern about editorial independence. We've now opened a specific email to which listeners can forward their concerns to our editors. It is salecomments at telegraph.co.uk. So salecomments, so with an S at the end, at telegraph.co.uk. We'll put the email in the description as well. To quote from our leader yesterday, a leader being the piece we write that summarises the view of the paper on the issues of the day, so not from (laughs) Rishi Sunak, we wrote, The British government's inquiry should also look at the wider risks of allowing a foreign state to take over a British newspaper. The government has shied away from this approach in order not to offend a supposedly friendly nation. But by welcoming Putin, Abu Dhabi has forfeited that description and made such an inquiry essential. So if you're as concerned as we are, then we'd appreciate it if you reached out. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francis. Hey, Mr. Bratton Gordon. My final thought is looking at cyber. A report in the paper yesterday and earlier on this week about potential Russian and Chinese cyber attacks on infrastructure in the UK and in particular nuclear power stations. I think Sellafield was the one focused there. This sort of goes back to my point about total warfare and uh, why we need to really double down in our focus east towards Russia. Uh, Everything else that's happening in the world, yeah, is desperate and needs reviewing as well. But as we sit on this little island, the, the thing that is going to affect us most potentially from a military perspective and security perspective in the next three years is looking east towards Russia, not perhaps further afield. So I think it's something that we just need to think about and consider. And I really hope that people are doing that in Whitehall and Westminster, tied in with our NATO allies and, of course, in particular in Washington. Well, thank you, Francis and Hamish. James, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like the very final words from what sounds like a very sunny Dubai? Yeah, I think, I suppose, really, I think one of the things which kind of illustrates how the UAE's geopolitical stance kind of faces both towards the West and and also towards Russia. Well, as I walked into the hotel, there's a plaque at the building next door, which commemorates a visit by Queen Elizabeth II. At the same time here in Dubai, we have the COP going on. So at the same time as this wanted alleged war criminal, a guy who has a warrant against him for the abduction of Ukrainian children was was being fated. You know, we had delegates from all across the world meeting in Dubai, trying to thrash out an agreement on uh, climate change, the climate change conference. While, of course, at the same time, there was a uh, a fly past in Abu Dhabi, which I can't imagine was particularly good for the environment. But there you are. Perhaps that didn't cross their mind. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. 
you can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 